0: When we think of ballast, we think of that stuff, that weight that is carried deep within the cargo of a ship, its presence unseen but its impact unmistakable. It works too well as a metaphor for the things in our lives that give us emotional stability that we'd be remiss if we didn't explore that a little. My name is Ellen Kelsey and you are listening to the fourth episode in Hackeye Magazine's podcast series on ballast. So in this episode of the Ballast Podcast, we look for ballast no further than ourselves. Ballast is something we carry with us wherever we go, and being properly ballasted affects our interactions with the world. It stabilizes us in times of turmoil. It turns out there's a lot of room for ballast buried deep within our own psyches. So let's see what's hiding out down there. We've all seen what happens when we, as humans, lose balance. I mean, seriously, we see it all the time in the celebrity world. Remember Britney's breakdown in 2007? I
1: love you, How you like your hair, Britney? You, you. you. Brittany. Brittany. Oh, oh, oh.
0: <laughs> Who didn't empathize with her urgent need to cut her hair? I know I owe a few haircuts of mine to painful breakups and heartfelt losses. Hundreds of years ago, artists struggled to stay even keeled. Michelangelo took more than four years to paint The Last Supper on the ceiling of the Vatican's Sistine Chapel, all the while tormented by the fate of his own deteriorating health and fear for his immortal soul. In one of his own poems, you can almost feel the pitch of Michelangelo's discontent as he takes us on a tour of his body's aches and pains.
2: A goiter, it seems I got from this backward craning, like the cats get there in Lombardy or wherever. Bad water, they say, from lapping their fetid river. My belly, tugged under my chin, is all out of whack. Beard points like a finger at heaven. Near the back of my neck, skull scrapes where a hunchback's lump would be. I'm pigeon-breasted, a harpy, face dribbled, see, like a Byzantine floor, mosaic. From all this straining, my guts and my hand bones tangle pretty near. Thank God I can swivel my butt about for ballast.
0: Ballast! Michelangelo, painter, sculptor, poet, architect extraordinaire, envisioned his own butt as ballast. Darwin, too, was a warrior. In her wonderful book, Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, Inside the Minds of History's
1: Great Personalities, Claudia Cald writes, He fretted about his children, about his work, about his deadlines, about his reputation, and almost always about what ailed him. Darwin, it could be said, suffered from anxiety, one of the most common conditions on the planet. During the 40,000 mile journey from England to South America, Australia and Africa, Darwin experienced rough seas and navigational mishaps and struggled with occasional bouts of fever, Uh. intestinal distress, a swollen knee, occasional boils and headaches and severe seasickness. He spent much of his time at sea nibbling on raisins, his father's prescription, lying in his hammock and retching. (coughs) The beagle journey, scheduled to last two years, stretched to five. When Darwin returned to England in October of 1836, he was a changed man and he wrote in his health diary, along with the other symptoms that plagued him the rest of his life, that he continually suffered from bouts of hysterical crying.
0: Sounds like a breakdown to me. And Darwin would have found himself in good company today. In August 2018, Barnes & Noble, the largest book retailer in the U.S., announced a huge surge in the sales of books about anxiety, a 25% jump in a single year. Globally, the World Health Organization say that almost 300 million people have an anxiety disorder. It's difficult to maintain stability, no matter how brilliant or creative or influential one might be. We need ballast in our lives. We need that thing that keeps us grounded. I mean, seriously, there's no way Oprah has managed to keep her cool the way she has all these years, channeling her enthusiasm into an empire worth roughly $3.5 billion. If she didn't have a Gale King, we all need a Gale King. So who better to talk to us about stress and the need to ballast ourselves than students? I stopped by the University of Victoria campus to find out what keeps students level-headed in times of turmoil when they feel shaken to the core because I don't know about you, but when I think of being shaken to my core, I always think of exams. And if I were to ask you, you know, I know it's a busy time of year for students, there's exams, there's the holidays coming up, all of those things. How do you maintain your own emotional ballast?
1: Oh, um, I actually do choir on Monday. So I do that every week and gets me out of the house <laughs> every so often. Naps and um just I, I call my my brother and my my mom a lot. Just to just to chat and complain. <laughs> Exercise
0: and meditation mostly that helped me balance.
3: Um absolutely friends and family. Uh on a on a less serious note, beer really helps. Um and my neighbor's just got a puppy, so that really helps too.
1: I'd say weed because it'll help you fall asleep at night. And that's like sleep is so important when you're stressed out and when you can't eat and when you just need to like relax and, you know, stabilize. I find that that really helps you
3: stabilize, like you
1: know, to do as well as possible. Say friends is a good ballast. Yeah,
2: friends and beer.
0: Of course, we also ran into folks who were having a harder time ballasting themselves. What's your secret ballast?
1: Um uh... I don't I don't think I have one.
3: <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> Normally, like, working out and going to the gym would, but I'm not doing that right now. <laughs> it's midterm season right now, so I'm sinking hard. I'm not balanced at all.
0: <laughs> Finding out how students manage their stress got me thinking about how I use ballast.
3: When we do the coaching piece, the more open and vulnerable you can be, the better. Okay. Uh, and... And I might push some buttons.
0: Meet Sabina Nawaz, a global CEO coach. She works one-on-one with senior executives to help them become better leaders. Sabina used the metaphor of emotional ballast in an article she wrote about executive coaching techniques for the Harvard Business Review. When I called her to ask her more about that idea, she told me ballast is more than just seeking life balance. It's a way of thinking about how to create more stability in our
3: lives. The term work-life balance is is quite hackneyed and used, overused. <laughs> and some people will say there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's work-life integration. And some people will say, oh, my work-life balance sucks. And some people will say, oh, my work-life balance is great and so on and so forth. And it's more about, I think it's a very dynamic thing. It is like ballast where it shifts. It needs to shift to different parts of the hold of the ship. Because you need to pay attention to different sides at different points in time.
0: Oh, I really love that fluidity of it. And, and the one thing I'm really coming to understand about ballast is just what you said. You're constantly compensating and moving things and adding things and removing things and then picking new things up again. So I, I think you're onto something quite wonderful.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really fluid. It's no moment is the same as the moment before on a sea. And same with our lives. Mm. Things change from moment to moment and certainly from day to day, week to week, month to month. And for me, it's also not moving tons of ballast from one side to the other or from one aspect of your life to another aspect, but making incremental shifts Mm. and having some strategies in mind to, to create more control and stability and when I say different aspects or different parts of your life, the article references four areas: your intellectual, physical, spiritual, and emotional sides.
0: Hmm. I'm I'm selfishly now wanting you to apply this to me. <laughs> I, I've been feeling <laughs> uh, a bit of a, a rocky uh, seas uh, recently, and I and I just wondered if if it wouldn't be too bold of me to ask you if you could. You know, can you use me as an example of of how you might coach someone through using this ballast idea?
3: Absolutely, let's give it a shot, Ellen. If you're if you're open to it, that's very courageous of you. Thank you. I, I may regret <laughs> this, but I, I think I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, tell me what.
0: I have a problem which I pro- I assume hits other people. I am in one of those periods right now where I have crazy monkey mind. My mind is jumping sit down constantly. Like for example, right now I have a few grant proposals I have to get written. I'm doing a book deal, proposal. I have like some, I have, um, some workshops minding. I'm doing. I feel like I'm I'm making the ship tip all over the place rather than you know smoothly sailing through the sea. Like I can't sit still long enough to get out these ideas that feel
3: exciting to me and familiar. You're you're, you're ahead of time, ahead of its time shifting the ballast before it needs to be shifted because somehow the current space, whichever the current space is, feels uncomfortable for some reason.
0: Oh that's brilliant. I think you're right. I think I'm moving things before I'm even in the water maybe or, or I'm... I'm projecting... uh, Sabina talks me through several hypotheses, helping me to see that I spend a lot of time living in the future, living in possibility, imagining what we could bring to the world.
3: Yes, and then another thing that happens in the future is anxiety, where somebody wise once told me that depression is about when we're worried about the past and anxiety is when we're worried about the future. And I wonder if your pivot is so much to the future that there's all this wonderful possibility, but then somewhere there's some sort of fear or anxiety about the future too that then untethers you and keeps you shifting that ballast before you've even hit the water and set sail.
0: I think that that's very, (laughs) you are very good,
3: (laughs) really good. I think you're right. Yes, therefore, I better hedge my bets And I better stack the ballast everywhere I can. Of course, I'm never setting sail because now my ship is weighted down with too much ballast everywhere. I'm sinking myself.
0: (laughs) That's brilliant. Ballast does make a great metaphor, but we're not the first ones to make that connection. Throughout history, the concept of ballast has been used and misused, sometimes in dark and twisted ways. In the 1930s, the Nazi government used propaganda movies to persuade the public that people living with disabilities were a drag on the health of the nation. The disabled lived what the Nazi party called ballasted existences. They were targeted and objectified as beings of lesser worth, as life unworthy of life, and as useless eaters. That's how they're depicted in this clip from a 1937 Nazi film called Opfer der Vergangenheit which translates as victims of the past. It's about mentally and physically disabled people and the danger and drain they are to the Aryan nation. The seeds of the Nazi's philosophy go back to 1920, when Carl Binding and Alfred Höcke demanded that all those who lead a ballast existence and thus were a burden to society be killed. This heinous idea eventually gave birth to the Holocaust.
2: I mean, many of the eugenicists, like uh, Carl Binding and Alfred who from who we get this idea of human ballast in the the early 1920s, um, they're taking this idea of ballast and stripping it free of all but its weight, right? It has no function for them except weight. It just is is a drag on things.
0: That's Adam Muller. He's the director of peace and conflict studies at the University of Manitoba. And of course, this rhetoric doesn't just come up in history.
3: We have people coming into the country or trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people, these are animals
2: that way, I mean, I think metaphorically today we, we sort of see um, the idea of the sort of social undesirables, for example, as being sort of evoking something like the same um, sense that there are individuals amongst us who matter less as human beings because somehow or other they don't fit into the social whole. I think if you look at some of the particularly American um, language surrounding illegal immigration, for example, surrounding racial inequality, inequality generally, for example, you find that language saturated with a sense that um, those individuals who are suffering and striving, those individuals who are in need, are in need for reasons that don't somehow justify us extending to them a conception of their fundamental equality. So um, viewed as less equal, um, viewed as uh, unduly needy, they then get conceived of as a kind of burden that needs to be somehow jettisoned or overcome.
0: It's easy to point fingers at Trump's clumsy attempts to cast immigrants in the guise of ballast existences, of dead weights on U.S. society, especially as he seems to be jettisoning the ballast he needs for the economy, as well as preventing that valuable ballast from even boarding the ship. But Adam quickly points out that we all harbor elitist assumptions. He sees this time and again with his students. And he's got a way of helping them to recognize these feelings.
2: So I think for me what I try and do is I I try and shake students out of a kind of easy moral complacency, which, although admirable, I mean, of course I want my students to be Mm -hmm. egalitarian-minded. Nevertheless, I think it's useful for them to realize the ways in which they harbor assumptions that are inegalitarian. And so one of the ways to do this comes from moral philosophy um, via this thing called the trolley problem.
0: The Trolley Problem Thought Experiment plays out like this. Imagine you are driving a train that is about to run over five people who are tied to the tracks ahead. But there's a split in the track ahead of you and you have a lever that, if pulled, would drive the train over to a second track where it would only kill one person. Would you pull that lever? Philosopher Philippa Foote Devised this dilemma back in 1967, it remains popular because it forces us to think about how to choose when there are no good options. Most people say yes, they'd kill one person to save the other five, and that's consistent with the philosophical principle of utilitarianism, which argues that the morally correct decision is the one that maximizes the well-being for the greatest number of people but we can alter the experiment to learn a lot about people's inner feelings and prejudices. What if the person you'd have to kill was from your hometown and the five on the tracks were immigrants? What if the people on the track are sick or old? Would it change anything for you? The metaphor of ballast as dead weight stands in sharp contrast to the way Sabina and the students use ballast as a positive emotional metaphor. Ancient Chinese scholars in the Qing dynasty, for instance, used ballast as a metaphor for peaceful, restorative practices. They were said to have sought spiritual ballast through deep philosophical contemplation in the seclusion of classical gardens. Authors Kim Cheng and Patrick Lowe, Give voice to our common need for spiritual ballast, especially in the turbulent times we now find ourselves.
1: Turbulent times are indeed presently upon us. Life is and can be topsy-turvy, and more so, many people are experiencing a terrible emotional nausea as our lifeboats toss to and fro. So what we need is faith, hope, and something more immensely positive. Perhaps spiritual ballast, would keep us level, cool and composed. It would buoy us up and give us a sense of stability as we sail through rough and choppy waters.
0: And that brings us right back to Sabina's notion of paying attention to how we create ballast or stability across the intellectual, physical, emotional and spiritual sides of our lives. Something I'm happy to say those students at UVic seem to knowingly understand.
1: Especially with finals coming up and like End of term projects and everything like that it's definitely hard to find things that kind of stabilize you in that time i always
3: find my roommates kind of like help me out a lot like i live with three people and like they kind of help me balance like if i need to do something else other than study they're like all right yeah let's go like give you a break like a mental health day kind of thing so that's really nice so i use them as like a getaway i guess
0: you know you're a busy guy working in a busy bar at a busy time of year what gives you Emotional ballast, what keeps you stable? Friendship
3: and love.
0: Thank you to everyone who kept this episode buoyed up. Sabina Nawaz, my executive coaching guru, Adam Muller from the University of Manitoba, and the wonderful, if not highly anxious students who spoke with us during their exam season from the University of Victoria. This episode of Ballast was produced by Katrina Pine and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our original theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Jude Isabella, Adrian Mason, Mark Garrison, David Garrison, and our fact checker, Megan Osmond Jones check out hackaiemagazine.com slash ballast podcast for more on each episode. We are an endeavor of Hackai Magazine and are produced next to the sea in historic downtown Victoria, British Columbia. Be sure to tune into the last episode of the Ballast Podcast, where we peer into the future to look at how ballast, one of the world's oldest technologies, touches everything from the inadvertent spread of cholera to New York's super skinny skyscraper craze.